Welcome to Montrose Bible Church. We're so glad you've chosen to join us as Pastor Matt and other church leaders challenge us with a message from God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus wraps up his tour of northern Galilee. And what an incredible tour it has been for the incarnate Christ. Going throughout all the region, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Leaving everyone in his audience astonished, astounded, and amazed. Now that's what Matthew continues to tell us, that after the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Well, that in the wake of the storm, the men were amazed, saying, what kind of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him, that the crowds gathered around him were so thick The disciples fear Jesus might be crushed by the multitude at any moment. At this point in Christ's ministry, the masses were enthralled with him, and they hung on his every word. So, with all of this newfound popularity, Jesus returned to Nazareth, a place he spent the better part of his first 30 years to announce his deity to those who knew him best. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 13. And follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 53. Matthew chapter 13, verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue, So that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. May God bless the reading of his word. You know, the scene that unfolds here is somewhat reminiscent of a high school reunion when everyone travels to their hometown after spending years somewhere else. And you might imagine what that's like. About once every decade, you pack your bags, you head back to mom and dad's home, and you prepare for some awkward conversations. No doubt it has been a few years since you've seen your old acquaintances, perhaps even longer since you sat down and talked to them. And as you're gathered around the table, catching up on all the things that have happened in your varied lives, there's always one or two who really surprise you with their out-of-the-norm, out-of-nowhere success. 
the ultra-shy kid who's now hosting a national television program, the average ball player who hit a growth spurt and made it to the pros, the B-plus student who went on to teach advanced mathematics at some Ivy League university. As you hear about these great things that are going on in their lives, you should be happy for them. You want to be an encouragement to them, but still many will look at them with suspicion. Who does this guy think he is? A TV star? I knew him when he was nothing. And the professor, please, I got better grades on every single test. There's no way in the world those guys I knew back then are doing these incredible things. He must be a fake, must be a phony, he must be a fraud because I just can't accept any other explanation. That's where this phrase comes from, I believe. Familiarity breeds contempt. And just as we scoff at the overachiever in our graduating class, the people in Nazareth just simply could not see past Jesus' humble beginnings. And they would not acknowledge him as the Christ. It seems knowing all about him, they still would not believe. An indication that mere proximity to one's Savior, well, that does not guarantee one's salvation. This morning, as we consider the unbelievable unbelief of Jesus' family and friends, we're made to realize four obstacles that continue to impede doubters still today. First, as we see in verse 54, unbelief blinds us to the obvious. When Jesus had finished the parables, he came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? As we have seen any number of times throughout the gospel record, Jesus always made a point to worship in the synagogue on the Sabbath. No matter where they were or what they were doing, his group of followers were sure to honor the Lord in this most sacred Jewish observance. As part of the synagogue service, attending rabbis would read scripture and offer commentary on the text, not unlike expository preaching in the church today. Though Jesus was not officially a Jewish rabbi, his reputation for strong teaching afforded him the opportunity to speak. And every time he did so, whether in Capernaum, Nazareth, or anywhere else, the people listening to him were left in awe and wonder. I mean, that's how Matthew describes it here, using the Greek word ekpleso, which means dumbfounded, overwhelmed, or astonished. Well, even his friends and neighbors had their minds blown by the things that he was saying. And that's wonderful. Except for one minor detail. You see, the people were amazed by his teaching, sure enough. But they were never fully pierced by it. They were never fully convicted by it. They were never fully transformed. 
Oh, wasn't it cool when he said this? Wow, I really like the way he explained that. And, oh, what a, what a shock it was to hear him thunder away at this particular thing. Yeah, that's wonderful. But for this people, that's as far as it got. In fact, because Jesus grew up in the house next door, they began to question how somebody like him could have such intimate knowledge of Scripture. Where did this man get these things? Uh, What is this wisdom given to him? And what about these miracles that were performed by his hands? Now, just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with these questions. In fact, they're ones that you and I ought to be asking as well. The problem for the people in Nazareth, and the problem for everyone who has not received Christ, well, it's not in the questions. It's that they missed the most obvious answer. If Jesus didn't get this by going to seminary, if he wasn't trained as a rabbi, if he didn't study any, any of the Pharisees, where do you think he got these things? It has to be from God. It has to be the Lord's wisdom. How else could he perform miracles such as these? I mean, that was the obvious conclusion that Nicodemus came to when he approached Christ in John chapter 3. Rabbi, he said, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Seems clear enough. But that's the perspective of one who was coming to faith. These friends in Nazareth, well, they were not. And their unbelief blinded them to the clear and simple truth. A truth that was at this very moment standing right there in front of them. It's not that they denied his great teachings, nor did they explain away his miracles. They saw those things and yet they did not see. And we are living in a generation of people whose vision has been obscured by the same unbelievable unbelief. It is destructive. It is debilitating. Ultimately, it is damning. This unbelief that veils God's truth from before our eyes. Thomas Aquinas wrote, to one who has faith, no explanation is necessary. To one without it, no explanation is possible. Because in that case, even the most recognizable reality will go unnoticed and ignored. Are you there? Unbelief blinds us to the obvious. And while that is incredibly disheartening, that's not its only effect. For as we see in verse 55, unbelief also distracts us with the trivial. 
The people continue their inquiry, saying to one another, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Now, once again, these seem like innocent questions. But just as the hardness of their heart prevented them from seeing the source of Jesus' wisdom and power, their unbelief seeks to justify itself amongst irrelevant data and trivial facts. As we listen in, we can hear several jabs that are meant to discredit his messianic claims. They begin by attacking his vocation. Isn't this the carpenter's son? The tecton, as we would have read it in the Greek, isn't this that blue-collar tradesman who spent all of his years growing up in a wood shop making tables and chairs? Now, of course, his lack of formal academic training tends to substantiate the notion that what he was speaking was directly from God, but not to those who are calloused by unbelief. Now, to them, the fact that Jesus was a lowly laborer made it much easier to diminish, disrespect, and dismiss him. I am still unaware how his carpentry skills would have affected the amazing things that he was teaching in the synagogue, but I suppose that's not really the point. Unbelief has a way of consuming us with irrelevance as it did the skeptics in Nazareth who were not done taking their shots at Jesus. Now, not only is this the carpenter's son, isn't his mother, that woman, Mary? Of course, they were entirely correct in identifying both his trade and the name of his mother. But they are not going for accuracy here. No, their comments were meant to disparage Jesus and cut him down to size. Uh, your, your mom's the one who got pregnant with you out of wedlock, is that right? Yeah, and now you're talking to us about holiness and purity at our synagogue service? I don't imagine I'll take instruction on those issues from the likes of you. You see? How come to think of it, even your own brothers and sisters? don't believe that you are the son of God. You know, James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and the girls, even they think that you have lost your senses, as we read back in chapter 12. And these are the people that have known you your whole life. Well, there is no denying it, friends. These things are, in fact, true. Jesus was a tecton laborer. His mom did get pregnant outside of the traditional Jewish arrangement for marriage. And his brothers, they do not yet believe. And those will either be reasons for you to shoot down the possibility of faith. Or they will help you marvel at how God could use such a humble servant to save the world. According to the prophet Isaiah, his normalness was not meant to be a blemish on his resume at all. 
Instead, it was a prerequisite to being crowned the Messiah. As described for us in the beginning of chapter 53, we're assured that whoever this Redeemer is, he will grow up like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. The world today does not esteem him, nor did his friends and neighbors in Nazareth, perhaps, that should tell us something about who this Christ really is. Yeah? Unbelief blinds us to the obvious, distracts us with the trivial, and hardens us against the messenger. Take a look back at verse 57. As his friends and neighbors questioned the source of his power and disparaged him for having an upbringing that was very similar to their own, they took offense at him. And Jesus said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Now the word Matthew uses there for offense is from the Greek skandalizo, to tell us that they were not only repelled by Jesus, They were not only repulsed by Jesus, they were very much tripped up by his various claims. It would appear that since the townspeople could not figure him out, they took offense at him and what he was saying. Unless you think their response is unique to their own situation. Well, Paul tells us this is always going to be the case for those who are filled with unbelief. We preach Christ crucified, he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And how exactly is that received? Well, to the Jews, he is a scandalizo, a stumbling block. And to the Gentiles, he is foolishness indeed. This is the response of our world to Christ. And people who are amazed by his words and at the same time, appalled that he would dare speak them. It's attention known well to those who deliver God's message of repentance and faith. Consider the example of Old Testament prophet Hosea. While speaking to Israel about the unfaithfulness of their people, Hosea was ridiculed for being an unworthy vessel. They looked at his life, where he came from and the modest living that he made, and they decided his words couldn't possibly come from God because, in their opinion, Hosea didn't fit the mold. He didn't measure up. He wasn't what they were expecting. How dare he tell us how to live? His own family doesn't listen to him. Sound familiar? When people don't like the message of the Lord, they harden their hearts against his messenger. A tragedy that continues to characterize those 
who are offended by Jesus today. When they cannot refute Christ's message, one theologian observed, unbelievers will not hesitate to attack him and anyone who speaks for him. Hemmed in by the truth, they strike back with ridicule, disdain, scorn, and persecution against the one who proclaims it. That is precisely what we see among the Nazarenes. As they, like so many others, renounce Jesus and bring themselves under eternal condemnation. And how sad a thing is that? To think Jesus had honor elsewhere, but could not find it in his own hometown, among his own relatives, or in his own household. How sad a thing is it that the Son of God was dishonored most by those who knew him best. In some ways, I believe this is the heartache of the 21st century church. That congregations of people claiming the name of Jesus the people who ought to know the Lord better than anyone else in the world would bring him such great dishonor. I mean, the world doesn't have a relationship with Christ. So it is no surprise to see them spit on the cross, to see them pervert Scripture, to see them promote themselves and ignore sin. It's not a surprise that the world would mock marriage murder babies, that they would lie, cheat, and steal. But when those who claim to know him well take on these wicked attitudes and behaviors themselves, well, that is shame on an entirely different level. Yeah? Unbelief blinds us to the obvious, distracts us with the trivial, hardens us against the messenger. And as we see in verse 58, unbelief keeps us from the blessing. At the end of this hometown narrative, Matthew states very simply that Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now Mark says something similar, only with a different phraseology. If you turn over to Mark chapter 6. The conclusion of his parallel account. Mark says that Jesus could do no miracle there. Except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Now, it's not that the power of unbelief in some way prevented Christ from performing any miracles, as some have asserted. We know if that were the case, if Jesus had somehow lost his ability, that no one would have been healed. And yet we are told of several in Nazareth who were made well at the hands of Jesus. It's not so much that he could not perform many miracles, but that he would not. Not that he was unable, that he was unwilling. It's the same concept we find a year later 
at the cross. Perhaps you recall the insults of the crowd saying, as they did in Matthew chapter 27, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Well, of course he could have saved himself, but he chose not to. Evidence that Christ does at times restrain himself from the full display of his brilliance. And that's what we have here. Jesus withheld his miraculous power from those who held him in such contempt. Refusing to release a blessing upon the people who had hardened their hearts against him so vehemently. Yeah, he healed a few. But imagine what he might have done in his hometown with his people if he were standing in the presence of faith. Our unbelief, friends, has a way of restricting the flow of God's grace. It's like a clogged artery that prevents life-saving blood from getting to where it needs to be. It's not that God's ability is diminished in any way by our lack of faith. But our ability is. Our ability to hear, to see, to respond to the work of Christ appropriately. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Unbelief will prevent you from seeing Christ in all his glory. That's what happened in 30 AD Nazareth. These people refused the privilege of God's blessing. And that's what still happens among us today. For when unbelief is present, the true blessings of God will not be. Whether for individuals or the church. As one theologian put it, we can add new programs until we don't have enough hours in the day to run them. But without a believing expectancy in Christ and his power, nothing will come of that at all. Yeah? Unbelief blinds us to the obvious, distracts us with the trivial, hardens us against the messenger, and keeps us from the blessing. These are the effects on you and I when we persist in unbelief. But what does our unbelief do in the heart of Christ? Matthew doesn't report on that detail, but Mark is sure to tell us in the parallel account that after the questions about his teaching, after the attacks against his credibility, after the scorn he suffered by those in his hometown, that Jesus wondered at their unbelief. Now, there are only two times in all of Scripture Jesus was left in a state of famazo, that is, in 
awe or amazement. In Matthew chapter 8, when a Roman centurion begged for his servant's life, Jesus marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Faith in a person who didn't have all of the background amazed the Lord. But he was equally astounded by the lack of faith amongst those who should have known better. And what a caution that is for you and I today. As Daniel Aiken asks, have we become so familiar with him, having been raised in church all our lives, that his words no longer convict? That his miracles no longer astonish? That his death no longer impresses us with amazing grace? It's important that we think about this because unbelief is not only found in one's outright rejection of Christ. Unbelief is also when we limit Christ. When we dismiss Christ. When we fail to appreciate Christ in all of His splendor. And if that's true of us, if we are too familiar to see the glory in it all, Jesus is liable to take his blessing elsewhere. In fact, that's what we're told in Mark chapter 6. Jesus wondered at their unbelief, and then he took his teaching on down the road. In fact, Jesus, according to Scripture, would never again return to Nazareth. Having seen the hardness, the unfaithfulness, the complete lack of faith, in that place. So, friends, where does that leave you? If your heart is filled with unbelief, don't be surprised to see Jesus blessing another. For that matter, if we are not a church who embraces Jesus in belief, full trust and belief, then I have no doubt he will remove his blessing from us as a body too. Look, I I know that we all struggle from time to time with doubts and with fears. I know we wrestle through times of difficulty, uncertainty, hardship, and hesitation. The Lord is not unfamiliar with those who waver in a moment here or there, but as the people of God, We cannot allow that kind of unbelief to take a foothold in our lives. We must cry out, as the Father did in Mark chapter 9, I do believe, Lord, help my unbelief. It is the most honest, most human, most agonizing prayer in all of the gospel. And it ought to be the continual cry of our hearts today. Let's pray together.
Thank you for joining us. I trust you've been blessed by the study of God's Word. For more information about Montrose Bible Church, visit our website, montrosebiblechurch.org.